radio show on this lovely Wednesday morning. It is chaos here. It is yes, absolute it is. chaos. I'll tell you, Nate Larkin, the uh, the Comanche. No, wait, that's not a good nickname. No, kind of like Commodore. I hope he's gone again. It's our chance. Mr. Yep. Wrinkly. That's his nickname today. <laughs> Mr. Wrinkly is uh, he's, he's not on the ship today. He's not on the ship today. He is getting pruny in the water. Uh, actually, he and Allie are doing some more medical stuff, so keep them in your prayers. Um, but we've got a great guest, great show. We've got, like, so many phone numbers on the switchboard, Mondo. Who is even on right now? Uh, we, uh, have we have our guest, our for, guest the for the day. And we also uh, have uh, our, uh, our, uh, our friend, our Newton Dominic, who's on phone. All right, so we got Newton, and hopefully he won't be echoing like you're echoing. You're crazy yeah, I, echoing. You're like yeah, a 70 psychedelic play with Pink Floyd echoing. It's awesome. Is it, is it better now? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to judge it like better or worse than. <laughs> yeah. He's and uh, we also have our guest on the line as well, Tony Chris, for the day, and also our buddy Philip Cox. All right. I like a full ship. I like it a lot. So how's it going there high atop the Mellow Mushroom, which is under renovation, I hear? Yeah, it's actually pretty chaotic in a lot of ways. Uh, we have a studio that's in shambles right now. Um, I had to take some things apart, getting um, you know some things organized. And uh, also the same chaos you're experiencing uh, with the podcast we're experiencing over here. So uh, it's, it's, uh, we've got about a 2,500-mile chaotic stream going on between me and you right now. So uh, things are cool, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Uh, isn't it isn't it amazing for those those people that maybe don't have to take apart uh, an audio console? They don't know the magic that happens where cables and cords mysteriously tie themselves into knots over like six yeah. months. It's not like they yeah. moved anywhere. Nobody touched them. It's a magic yeah. trick. Well, it's kind of one of those things where you know you say, well, maybe I won't use the zip ties. And then when it's time to disassemble, you start cussing yourself out because you wish you would have used the organized zip ties to make sure everything clean and neat. Uh, so we got uh, black spaghetti over here, you know, all over the place. And uh, but it, it's exciting. Got some some new things coming in, and and uh, it should be good, man. So, uh, but we try to pull out the podcast, uh, you know, but in, in the old way we used to do it. And uh, but we can't today because you know everything's put away, microphones and everything. So. But uh, hey, so speaking of that, man, do you want you want to kind of give a little bit of uh, info about what we're looking to do? Well, is it is it decided? I think you and I are the deciding factors more than anybody. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, are it, we both it on is. Board? Yeah, we are both on board. So that everyone heard the decision. Now we are looking at going back to the old format very soon uh, for several reasons. We've gotten a lot of feedback from our guys about the quality uh, about. Um, just everything, how the old show used to go. We did about 100 shows in the old format, and we're about 28 in through Blog Talk, and we're thinking of going back to the old format. So how does that make you feel, Brother Aaron? What what, what makes me feel good? What that's going to mean is we will no longer be recording through telephones into the Internet. We will be set up as a podcast that you can download. It will still be available on iTunes and lots of places. You won't right. be able to listen live, which I think is fine because uh, our friends who are listening right now live have proven that they don't want to call in. And that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I know. You know. And it's it's kind of bad. I feel like a, a record label that buys its own units because when we're tweeting and Facebook and our friends, hey, call into our show. It's cool. I promise. You know, when we do that, it's uh, <laughs> I think it's time to go back to the old format, man. Yeah, but the audio quality is going to be so much better. So I am I am happy about that. And, well, uh, you know, with, with so many listeners, we I mean, we have thousands of guys that listen to the podcast, and we want to make sure that you know everyone is enjoying it at the highest level possible. And we our assumption was that the the current format with the blog talk would be a convenience for everyone involved, uh, the, us as well as uh, the guys and gals listening. Um, however, the quality difference and uh, that has made the, the, the decision for us. You know, we're going to go back. So, uh, but I'm, I'm excited, man. It should be cool, right? I I absolutely think so. I totally do. So, how are you doing, Newton? You've been quiet there. Let's see, he is still being quiet. 
And we are back. I hope you all enjoyed the rain dogs for the morning. It's a drizzly morning here in San Luis Obispo. Uh, what's what's your weather like there in Franklin? You drizzling it out? It is gorgeous. Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Sunny, it's Seventy. We've got San Diego weather today. All yeah. right, good. You know, every once in a while, you guys should feel good about that kind of thing. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> So today we've got someone on the show that Mondo has been itching to have on the show for a long time. Yeah, Mondo? Yeah, man. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him uh, face-to-face this morning um, after a long red-eye flight from Portland. Uh, a friend, of, a friend, of, a close friend of mine, Philip Cox, introduced me to his buddy, uh, T- uh, Tony Chris, and uh, we were able to schedule a good uh, trip for him to come in and spend some time and, and speak and share throughout the next five, six days, man, and I'm, I'm just uh, honored to have him here with us today on, on the Pirate Mom Podcast, man. So uh, welcome, Tony. Tony Thanks a lot. Tony, now, Good to Tony be here in studio. In studio. Talking on the telephone in studio. Now, Tony is an award-winning poet. He has uh, compilations of his poetry around the world. There are few people that have written as much poetry at his age as he has. Uh, Thank you so much for starting that way. That would be accurate to say, right? (laughs) If I had had a dollar for every time somebody asked me to read a, a piece of poetry that I've written, I would be a rich man. And every time I have to, I have to let them down and let them know that I don't actually write poetry. That's frustrating ah. part of my life. But why do so, people think you write poetry? Nobody thinks I write poetry. Oh, well, okay, so Donald Miller wrote, called me Tony the Bee Poet in Blue Like Jazz because he thinks I look like a bee poet. He <laughs> thinks my, my, my creative relationship I have with facial hair and uh, clothing fashion makes me look like a bee poet. And ever since he wrote those words, the world thinks I write poetry. Dark on it. That is great. All right, well, take us back before uh, your college experience. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? How did you get to the point that you wanted to write a book on neighbors and wise men, uh, these characters in the Bible that are outside of the normal uh, religious genre, and yet they were brought into God's story so significantly? Uh, Where did you start? Yeah, so I grew up in the town of Eugene, Oregon, uh, in Eugene in the Willamette Valley. And if you don't know anything about Eugene, Eugene is a town where hippies go to die, so it's kind of a super liberal, hippie town. A lot of people move up from California kind of to retire there and whatever. So a lot of my teachers growing up were these ex-hippies, anti-religious, anti-God hippies that I got to spend my growing up years around. And in the classroom, I was taught that only an idiot would be uh, a religious person. And in addition to that, I also grew up in a conservative church. So I kind of had these two worlds that I had to learn to juggle uh, as a child, and uh, I think I still juggle them quite a bit now that I live in post-Christian Portland, um, where I am a follower of Jesus, but very few of my neighbors are, and yet I live integrated with my neighbors every day. Um, story of my life is boy, it's, it's kind of a long trek, uh, three and a half weeks out of college. I didn't want to live in America anymore. I didn't think I would ever live in America again. Climbed on a plane, moved to the Muslim world of the Muslim family for two years in Albania, uh, and then went kind of from hotspot to hotspot through my 20s until I now, eventually... Hold on, hold on there. Hold on. I'm interrupting right. you when you say, when no. you say crazy things. i got to interrupt you. Go. So what, we're, we're told that Muslims don't want to have anything to do with the infidels, so why uh, were they letting you, like, what transpired to have this Muslim family say... Yeah, we'll take this Western Christian into our home for two years. That sounds yeah. weird to my earlobes. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny the way we think about Muslims? You know, I mean, uh, the vast majority of Muslims in the world are are the equivalent of an American churchgoer. Uh, yes, they absolutely would say they're Muslims. They would say that's an important part of their identity. But how much do they really identify with it or how much does it freak them out? And certainly how much is jihad a part of their vocabulary? Absolutely zero. Never think about it. So I was just like an exchange student coming to an American family. And so just I was going the other way. I just happened to be a Christian missionary at the time. But to to them, they were like, we're not not offended by your 
the fact you're a Christian. Like, come, stay in our home. Let us take care of you. They cooked me breakfast and dinner every day. We would spend hours together telling stories every day. They, um, the, the time I was in Albania, uh, we didn't have electricity most of the winter. Uh, the water only came on at 2 o'clock in the morning for about an hour. So we had to get up in the middle of the night to fill buckets in order to ask me to drink the next day. So we had to work together as a family just to, for the basic things of life, water, electricity, live by candlelight, kerosene heaters, that kind of thing. And it was a, it was, um, it was a lovely existence. But, yeah, we were completely integrated. They totally adopted me. They, they referred to me as their son. And the fact that we had uh, different religious labels didn't offend them at all. And that was right. a that was a big a, a a big challenge for you, wasn't it? I mean, I know in the book oh, yeah. you talk about how you really had to learn how God could teach you through Muslims oh, yeah. or or through oh, anybody. Yeah. yeah, I was saturated with that programming, just like most Americans are. So when I got there, I was very suspicious of this family that you know had had shown me affection and, and appeared to be caring for me, but. Um, I was suspicious of their motives first, but I got over that because they really showed consistent love. But then I was very suspicious that they could actually be um, spiritually edifying to me, that maybe they could actually teach me things about God that um, that would help me be more spiritually whole. That was a very difficult thing for me to grasp, and yet they were doing it all the time. Wait, 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 because you're talking crazy again. You Just have crazy, crazy You have crazy <laughs> word issues. So word just, yeah. just like I talk to people who don't know Jesus, right. and they are immediately suspicious of me and my motives in any relationship, yeah. and then whether or not my beliefs could have anything uh, edifying in their life. Like, right. you as a Christian dropped into their culture feeling everything that non-Christians in our culture feel? Yeah, isn't that amazing? And if only they realized that I'm right all the time, that our car relationship would have been so much easier. <laughs> so that being said, did you find that they had more or less arrogance than Christians in our culture? How is it different? Because Islam is so much, you know, their state religion or their uh, dominating religion, just like Christianity could have been said here. How is it different in a Western culture versus Albania when you were there? Well, again, I don't know that it was that different. I mean, we could, we could certainly pick apart differences, but um, I think for the most part Christians have a, folk, have a folk faith. The vast majority of churchgoers that I come across and across this country, they just have a folk faith. They're not really taking Jesus seriously. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a helpful label. Uh, it's a validating label. Um, it helps them sort of organize the way that they see their family or whatever, but and and most Muslims are the same way. It is a it is a folk faith. My, my the grandmother that I lived with, yes, she prayed every morning. She prayed towards the east, like she's supposed to. Um, but I the, the the gentleman that I lived with, the the head of the household, I never really saw him praying. Uh, I I don't really recall him going to mosque that often. Maybe he did, but I I don't I wasn't aware of it. I mean, they they had a folk faith, and they they, they used. Islam was their label. It was their tribe, uh, more so than their, their religious practice. So from Albania, where did you go? Um, I spent some time in Turkey and in Israel uh, and a year in Hungary, but I, I did a two-year stint in Yugoslavia during the war, and we were bombing the crud out of Serbs, and that made for interesting adventures. Why did you choose to be in a war zone? Uh, masochism, mostly. Um, <laughs> uh, and I say that I say that as a joke, but it's also not a joke. There was there was part of me that was addicted to adventure, and believed that I had to do things extreme to sort of separate myself from the rest of the Christian world. Uh, I was literally trying to prove to God that I was worthy of His attention. And so I was pushing myself to, to more and more difficult places um, sort of to get God to notice me. And you, you talk about, I, I think you relate that, um, that mindset to driving a car on a, a windy road. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how, that, how you went from that to um, 
I, I think sitting, if I remember correctly, sitting in a Turkish bathhouse, uh, <laughs> trying to listen to trying to listen for God. Yeah. So the metaphor I use is I've, a lot of people I, I run across uh, people of faith. They talk about their faith as if they're talking about a drive in the country on a Sunday afternoon. Sun is shining, the windows are down, wind in their hair, lovely music playing on the radio, and sort of giggling as they drive down a country road. And that's what faith feels like to them. My faith never feels like that. For me, um, faith is, is a wrestling match most of the time. So I say, for me, faith is more like driving a sports car on a cliff-top gravel road, and I accelerate out of every corner just to see if the wheels of my faith will hold the corner or if I'll tumble off the cliff. And in light of that, I've managed to basically crash my faith life several times along the way because I do kind of push my beliefs to the limit to see if they can handle it. And inevitably, my faith, part of it is beautiful. Part of it is a desire to, to love God, know God, proclaim God. Uh, but part of it is uh, wrapped around my own selfish issues, my own validation issues, my own insecurities, my own ways that I manipulate people and use God for my own ends. And, um, and one of the more sort of tragic seasons of my life was when I was in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, and I write more, a lot more about that in my next book. But um, when I was there, I basically completely uh, went bankrupt personally, spiritually. My soul kind of died inside of me. I lost the ability to, to believe I became the worst version of myself, full of anger and manipulation, and really hurt the people around me. And I was I was a national director. I had a bunch of teams under me, a bunch of young people fresh out of college that I was try, I was supposed to be caring for, and I wasn't caring for them at all. I was hurting them by because of my brokenness. And so I got fired. And, uh, it was very shameful sort of firing, very public sort of firing. I got jerked out and placed in Budapest while they sort of like decided what to do with me. Um, because I didn't really yeah, believe like a, anymore. Like a, it's like a gulag thing. You were sent to Russia. <laughs> I, you know, it felt like that. I was, stu I was stuck in this little one-bedroom apartment, and I waited for them to sort of like, for the jury to kind of go into the jury box and decide the verdict of my fate. And unfortunately, they, they went in the jury, into the jury room for six months and never came out. I never had one conversation. I didn't know what they were doing. They wouldn't tell me. And so I literally just sat in Budapest, which is a horrible city, by the way, to be alone and broken and bereaved. And basically, if how I, how I made it to that season without, like, completely getting high or, like, sleeping with a prostitute or something, I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. I mean, there was some sort of supernatural something on me because I was so depressed just wandering the streets. And so in the book, I tell this story how I wandered into a Turkish bathhouse, which was just full of a bunch of sort of uh, corpulent uh, Hungarian mafioso types, you know, sitting around in the bath. Uh, and I just, in there, when in the still water of this bathhouse was the first time that I really felt my soul kind of peace come to my soul. It was kind of the first time that, that God started to knit my, my heart back together. And so that's, that's the story that um, he was asking about. Wow. Chapter 10, Neighbors and Wives. <laughs> <laughs> I am, you know what, I've just filtered four things right now, and I just want to say that publicly. <laughs> That's all I have to say. But there have been right. four filtered responses to the Turkish Bathhouse story. Uh, so what happened after, uh, here you are in the first kind of waiting out. Well, no, here's, here's my real question. Go. Because I have been in those, those bankrupt spots. And sometimes there is, I'm only one step away from everything my heart desires. And sometimes it's like Elijah who's walked all the way up to the cave to be alone to hear the still small voice, but he still is ignoring God. And God's messages go back the way you came. And you have to walk all the way back. So which was it for you? Was it one step away or was it the whole journey back? Um, I don't know that either of those metaphors really resonate with me. 
um, what it felt like was my theology, let's just you jump to big, big words here. My theology had gotten to the point where the, where the tears, the evil thoughts, the, the sort of evil beliefs that I had, selfish beliefs I had, had become so wrapped around the wheat beliefs of my life, the tares and the wheat, to use that analogy from the Jesus Jesus, they become so wrapped together that God looked at me and said, there's no way to save the wheat. So we just have to harvest it all together and tear it all out and scrape your soul clean and start over because your beliefs are so path, pathologically twisted. And so God literally started over. And so it was, it was a long, maybe it was the long journey back, maybe that is the metaphor, but I, it was a slow process. It, it took me two years to get back to even borderline equilibrium. So how did you go about that? Starting day one, knowing there's a long journey ahead, did you stay uh, an American in foreign lands? Did you come home? Yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't. I didn't have any idea what the journey was. I didn't care about the journey. You could. I, I wanted to flip off the journey. I didn't care. I really didn't care. I was just trying to get through each day, to the end of each day, counting the hours. So six months in Budapest, and finally the the verdict came down, and they sent me back to the states to heal, and they stuck me in a conservative evangelical seminary and put me on a slow drip of theology in order to heal me. And um, and the ironic thing was, and this is sort of this part of the story of the book, is while I was in a seminary and I had you know the opportunity to go to Christian churches, um, those were not the places of my healing. My healing happened through the fellowship through the spiritual engagement I had with uh, people, in, particularly in two places. One was a local pub about, about two miles from my seminary that I would go to every afternoon, even though it was technically against the rules to consume adult beverages. I would go, and I would get a, a British pint of uh, IPA, and I would sit there, and these bar flies would come over and they would sit with me all afternoon and we would talk about theology and faith and life and they would tell me about their brokenness and um, they would listen to me talk and they would encourage me to continue to believe. And the other place was I stumbled onto Reed College, which is uh, arguably the most liberal campus, college campus in America uh, in southeast Portland and ended up being kind of through a whole string of events the um, volunteer chaplain at Reed College. So this is an entire college that at, at the time when I arrived, there were four, four people on campus, four students on the entire campus that on any level, on any level, would identify themselves with the Jesus way. Um, wow. And most of them would not use the word Christian for themselves. But they, would, they would identify as wanting to follow Jesus on an entire campus, four students. And spending time on that campus with that incredible mix of anti-religious, quote-unquote, pagan students was one of the most life-giving things that ever happened to me. So what point in the story did you feel like, all right, I need to, I need to start processing this in word form and write this book, Neighbors of oh. oh, that's a whole other story. So, um, so you have to jump another 10 years later after the Reed experience, and because Don, Donald Miller wrote Blue Lake Jazz, and I'm a character in, I think, most of the chapters, uh, I've actually had people hound me for the last 10 years to write because they think that just because I was a character in Don's book and Don's book sold 2 million copies, that somehow I should write a book and it will sell 2 million copies. So I've had publishers call me. I've had – so it's ridiculous. It's stupid. But my problem is I hate the printed word. I'm dyslexic. I'm – I, I hate to write. You couldn't pay me to journal. I, I've never taken a writing class. And so the idea of writing to me was not something that sounded fun or enjoyable. But um, one day I was sitting with a friend of mine, and we were talking about Christian books. And we were talking about how it seems like so many Christian books are just the same book. The same ideas rehashed and rehashed and rehashed. And... Um, have you know we've kind of lost some creativity in Christian publishing, and then I said the statement, you know, a book I would love to read. I'd love to I'd love to read a book that somebody wrote about how people outside of Christendom have taught them 
the gospel of Jesus. That would be an interesting book to me. And my friend across the table who actually had worked in publishing, he said, can you write that book? If you can write that book, you need to write it. And I said, I can write that book easy. Say that, say that again. People outside of Christendom have taught Christians about what it means to be a Christian? For someone, for a person to write a book about how other people, all of which are outside of Christendom, have been instigators, strong forces in teaching the writer how to follow Jesus. Yeah. And so that's where that's how Neighbors and Wiseman was birthed. And so I just started writing my stories about people outside of Christendom, my Muslim family, the students at Reed College, the barflies at the local pub, how they actually taught me the gospel and healed me spiritually um, in ways that, that the church was not, at least at that point, able to do for me. Now, how, because I, I so resonate with what you're saying, and I love the stuff that I've learned from my non-Christian friends that give good light to my gospel journey. But sometimes for me, it makes it, it makes me more closed off to the church who still has something to teach me as well. Absolutely. So what's that journey like for you being a refugee, king of the refugees in your world? Yeah, well, I honestly, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are just angry at the church. And I'm not. Like, I just, I don't, I don't have that angst, at least at this season of life. Maybe I did earlier. But um, I, I just, I'm not. I'm not even angry at, you know, particular sects of the church. Like, so in the Pacific Northwest, you know, there's, um, there's these really com- conservative movements. There's the neo-reform movement that a lot of people are pissed off at. And, I mean, I've known Driscoll for 12 years. And, yeah, I think Driscoll can kind of be an ass, but I'm not pissed off at the guy, and I'm not pissed off at his church. And so, anyway, I just I don't have that sort of angst. And if somebody's a Christian or somebody's a non-Christian, I mean, that's not, that's not sort of a deal-breaker one way or the other for me, or one doesn't put me in a particularly suspicious state one way or the other. Um, and that, maybe that's just me, but I also work in the church. I mean, my, we don't actually go to a brick-and-mortar church. Or my family does not. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a consultant to churches. I'm, I'm a, basically a professional friend to pastors. I spend a lot of time sort of advising and counseling pastors as part of my life. So I have a ton of compassion for the church and how hard it is to do the, the work of God in this world. Sorry, I'm still stuck on professional friend to pastors. Do they still call them escorts? Thank you. Yeah, no problem. If the, you know, what, what honestly, is, what if the is, is right. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what that ministry, because I actually really, uh, one of the closest friends I've had was essentially that, and I think that is a weird-sounding job to most people. Uh, and so we can remove the escort statement, but tell people about that, because pastors are really in a weird spot. So I didn't know you did that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, they're, they're desperately lonely. They, they, and most pastors live a peerless life. I mean, even the people that they say are their close friends don't let them be their peer. And uh, it's weird. It's, you know, because part of it's sort of a, a weird human thing where we, we get into a cult mentality with the guy in charge and um, – and part of it is all the ways that I think our seminaries train pastors um, to create these false validation systems through their job, uh, you know, by counting nickels and noses and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so it just puts pastors in a really tough spot. I, I have a ton of compassion. And so, um, you know, I can walk in, and my giftings in the areas of sort of intuition and uh, and I'm, I'm basically an ass is another thing. So uh, I can sit across the table from a pastor and go, you know, bullshit. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not going to play your game here. I, I see what's going on and let's talk through it. You don't have to impress me. I was impressed before I walked through the door. I'm, I'm impressed just you show up every week and you do the hard work of the ministry. So let's stop. Let's stop the game. I don't need your resume. I don't need your numbers. I don't need to know what you preached on on Sunday so I can tell you you did a good job. Like, we don't have to play that game. I'm already on your team. Now let's just talk straight. Let's get into your crap. And, and to have somebody 
in a pastor's life who's, you know, you know, not some crotchety fellow from the from the denominational office or whatever who can just sit down and go, let's just bro, let's get a let's get a beer and let's sit down and let's deal. And if we have to get pissed, each other will get pissed. Then we'll make up for it on the back end and, and then we'll order another round. Let's just talk. And so that's how I spend a lot of my time. And so like my family doesn't go to brick and mortar church because my wife's basically a monastic. She doesn't she doesn't get anything out of entertainment church. And uh, my kids <laughs> Jeez. She's just at home doing Lectio Divina. <laughs> oh yeah, or yeah, whatever. Um, sitting on the porch smoking hookah, one or the other. And uh, <laughs> oh, your wife is so fascinating all of a sudden to me. Your family is <laughs> oh, you have no idea. And then and okay. then we live in a communal household. We live in a, a communal household with a bunch of other people, and so we do, you know, household meals and community meals and stuff. And those are those are more sacred to us than um, than praiser size is. And that's just us, right? Did, did you just say praiser size? I did. I did say praiser size. Okay. Um, For those listening right now, Tony's saying praiser size, as in the exercise that churches use to stand up, clap, jump, sometimes bark like dogs, i.e. praiser size on Sunday morning. Continue, Tony. Okay. All right. Um, so I spend my, a lot of Sunday mornings going to churches where my friends are and sitting in the third row and letting them see how much I've got their back. I'm with you, and just letting them know I'm with them. You know, and afterwards, they want me to critique your sermon. I go, no, I didn't come to critique your sermon. I came because I'm with you. I care about you. And so that's what it means to be a friend of pastors. Wow. And what has the response been from the guys that you have walked this path with? We're friends. That's it. We're friends. So they've it's, accepted um, that. There's, there's not a commodity exchange. We're just friends. Yeah, I guess my question is, they have accepted that level of friendship. Is that scary? That's a risk on their part to accept that. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things is, um, and not, I'm certainly not perfectly, I'm, I'm particularly flawed human being, um, but I, I do have a capacity to kind of accept guys at whatever point they're, they're willing to, to enter in, uh, to you know, let them be in their particular state of, you know, figuring it out or insecurity or whatever's going on because there are a lot of guys, particularly lead pastors, um, you know, 30-something, 40-something guys who have got, you know, congregations of 200 to 1,000, who, um, which those are fairly good-sized churches in Portland, um, who, who they're just so alone. They don't, even, they, they don't know how to be a friend. They don't know how to just – they don't know how to fight anymore because right. everything's politics. Let me make this this turn in two ways, both from okay. your book and from your life as being a friend to pastors. Okay. We've got a lot of people listening that care about the church, have been hurt by the church, don't know how to fit into the church. Uh, what you are talking about is super dear to my heart. Uh, learning to uh, – I'm going to break this into two, so here's number one. How would you say, friends out there listening, who you go to church and you engage best you can, then you go into your secular work job, obviously breaking up the secular and the sacred here, and the only information you've ever been given is how to turn any conversation into a conversation about Jesus manipulation. Right. What would you tell them as far as how to listen and let other people, those people made in the image of God, who might not know Christ, but they have something to offer, how can they right. start to train their hearts to listen? Right. So um, I think I, I believe I'm hearing you. Um, is this Aaron, by the way? It is. I've lost track of who I'm talking we, to. We, we lost Newton a little bit ago. We dropped him. Okay. Okay, so this is but, Aaron. But, but you know that whole thing of somebody calling you an escort? That that was definitely new. That wasn't Aaron. Okay, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So the question you're asking, I, what I witness, so I, I also live in a very, very weird juxtaposition between the um, the progressive church and the conservative church. Um, I, I surf kind of equally in both worlds, and both worlds consider me an outsider. Like, 
the conservative church considers me, thinks I'm progressive, and the progressive church thinks I'm conservative. Um, so it's kind of a weird thing. And, and on this question of engaging the other, I find that it's sort of there's this false dichotomy we've created that either um, every relationship is a condescending relationship where the other person needs me at all times, and my job is to dispense to them religious ideas so that on the hope that they might be saved, right? There's either that or the other dichotomy at the other end of the spectrum is – you know what, I'm okay, you're okay, God's, God's just going to do what God's going to do, and really I just need to um, love people in just sort of uh, a meaningless use of the word love. And, um, and I want to I grab sort of both sides of that dichotomy and twist both of them and go, no, like I, I agree with both and I disagree with both positions. I think I – think Jesus is the most fascinating, beautiful thing I could talk about. I think the gospel of the kingdom of God is absolutely spectacular. And if there's a conversation that it doesn't come up, I'm surprised. Because there's not a topic we can talk about that's not somehow integrated with the kingdom of God. And I'm talking everything from pop music to my favorite kind of food. On some level, it's going to get integrated with some concept around my understanding or my dance that I'm having with God, his kingdom, and the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's just going to happen. On the other hand, if I'm in a conversation with somebody and I say, hey, tell me about your spiritual story, and we sit there and for 45 minutes they talk straight, and at no point in the conversation do they ever lob the ball back to me so that I can give my particular take on my spiritual life, if the entire conversation is just me listening to them and delighting and marveling in the beauty of their story as if they are a blockbuster movie, if that's all I do is listen to them, that, that conversation is utterly beautiful and significant and valuable in the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, whether or not I get to share my opinion has very little to do with significance in the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, I am not the most important person in the conversation. God is. And God's got a whole conversation that God's having that I don't even realize. And I can, I can rest in that. I talk about God because it delights me and God. I believe, to be in that conversation together, not because of some sort of mandatory mission or commodity that I'm supposed to be a part of. But that's just my take. Hey, Tony, I think this lets me – this is Newton, by the way. Uh, hey, but I, I think this lets me bring up, I think, my, my favorite section of the book um, where you talk about the idea of sharing the gospel not so much like it's a piece of chocolate cake, but sharing the gospel like a sunset. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I hear you saying here. Can I just that when I read that analogy, uh, it just gosh, it, it just blew me away because I've never had that presented to me that way. Um, and I don't know, if, I mean, because you already have talked about it, but I mean, can you can you talk about that a little bit more? The the idea of sunset versus cake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so the idea of sharing the gospel is a phrase that has has been around me my entire life. And, but words, words are actually stories. Like a word is like a, is like a vessel that we fill up with a story. And the word share, as it's used in that phrase, share the gospel, there's a story behind it. And I, nobody ever defined the story, but somehow all along the way when I was a kid, I learned that it was like, that sharing the gospel was like sharing a, sharing a chocolate cake. This is it's just a, uh, an analogy. But so a chocolate cake is something that I have, and it's something very, very wonderful that God has given me. It's wonderful, it's delicious, and everybody should want it. And if they don't realize that they want it, it's because they haven't really tried it yet. And so my job is to go out in the world and help people, even if I have to force people into trying the chocolate cake so they can have it. So when I walk into a conversation, I have the chocolate cake, and the other person does not. And the, converse, the purpose of the conversation is for, for me to get them to try this thing that I have and they do not have. So it's a one-directional conversation, it's a commodity conversation, and it's a condescending conversation. But when I, during my time at Reed College, when I was hanging out with fantastic sort of um, secular Jews and, um, and atheists and agnostics and Buddhists and just this fascinating collection of students and who were so smart and thoughtful, um, I started, there was this new metaphor, this new story that filled the vessel of the word share in the phrase share the gospel. And the new one was instead of sharing a piece of chocolate cake, it was like sharing a sunset. 
because a sunset's very different than sharing chocolate cake. A sunset, when you share a sunset with somebody, you don't stand nose to nose like in a combat um, stance. You stand shoulder to shoulder like friends, and you both observe the sunset together, and you both talk about the beauty of it, and both people get have equal opportunity to share in the experience to um, enjoy the experience. And both people have things to offer to the conversation in this process of sharing the gospel, which is like sharing a sunset. Now, one thing that's important for sort of Christians to know, when I use that metaphor, is I'm not saying that both people have the exact same education about the sunset. One of the two people may, in fact, have studied photophysics and atmospheric density and the relationship between heavenly bodies and this sort of thing. So they can talk about the physics of what's going on because they have studied sort of the theology behind the beauty of the sunset, the gospel of the kingdom of God. But the other person can just as easily join in and go, but I just think it's freaking beautiful. Or I think it's blah, 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 because God is speaking to them as well in whatever their experiences have been. And the beauty, Tony, of, of that to me, as you're saying it, the first relationship when you have the chocolate cake, it is condescending because I have the cake and you need right. to get it from me. Right. Whereas no matter how educated one person is versus the other looking at the sunset, nobody has the sunset. Nobody owns it. Right. And, a, and, and a three-year-old child can offer just as much of that conversation as the 70-year-old with, with six degrees when we talk about the sunset. And the gospel and the kingdom of God is the same way. The three-year-old child has just as much right to, to offer to that conversation. All right, so here's question two for you. Question two is, as you've engaged pastors, learned about their needs as a friend, and you've come in and learned how to be a friend to pastors, it has been brought up on this show often that lay people, the laity, the saints of the church, ought to become skilled in loving their pastors if their pastors will allow it, and sometimes pastors ought to be bullied into learning how to be friends. So what advice would you give our dear ones who listen in every week to say, look, here's how you can make a difference in letting your pastor be a member of their own church? I don't know if it's possible. I don't believe it. Stop that cynical nonsense. Start again. <laughs> uh, I, I just think, again, this is part of where um, I think it's so hard to be a pastor because I, I don't think we, as much as we say that we want it, we want our pastor to be approachable, we don't. We don't want our pastor to be approachable. Here, okay, here's, here's an example. I think most people spiritually live lives of quiet desperation. They actually don't believe. And deep down inside, they realize they don't believe. Because all of our triumphal language is not true inside of them when they sit alone with their thoughts and their feelings and their beliefs. When they sit alone, they don't really believe it. And, and yet, the guy at the podium does believe it. Because he stands up every Sunday and he says it like it's absolutely true. And I believe that he gets it. And I don't want to know that he doesn't. And if I find out about him in his everyday life, I'm going to find out he doesn't get it any more than I do. He's just better at talking about it than I am. And if I realize that, my hope is lost because I, the only faith I have is vicariously through that guy or gal. And I need them. I need them to have it all figured out because the only faith I have is vicarious faith. And so I think it is very, very difficult. Even though we say we want to be friends, we don't. We don't want to know the pastor. And... I know that's cynical, and it's probably that's certainly not the answer you were looking for. But I, I do think that, that 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 is a very real dichotomy in our churches, which is why pastors are so isolated, because they're carrying the faith of an entire community, because people don't actually believe. Yeah, the people build the pedestal as much as any pastor builds the pedestal, because they need somebody well, to be the superhero. It's a social contract. We've, we've, we've entered into a social the, – the pastor needs it because of his effed-up validation systems. He needs to be sort of adulated as the guy who gets it, and he, he comes he comes upon it honestly, like he's been he's been through he's been coerced into this paradigm, and then the the audience needs him to be perfect too. So because he is literally, 
he is the scapegoat. He is the sacrifice that carries the faith of the community. And so it's, 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 it's rough. It's rough stuff. Again, this is why I want to be a, pa- a friend of pastors, because they need, they need to not be a pastor every once in a while in their life. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty depressing. As a pastor. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but it need not be so. It does take courage on the part of those who want to own their faith as a community. Uh, for those that realize that their pastor is that member of their congregation who has been gifted to lead and to teach, but hasn't been gifted to be so much more than they are. Yeah. And that's, there, there is hope in that for me. I've, there, is, there is hope. Here's an, here's, here's an idea for hope. Let's, let's shut down the church. Um, so you, listener, shut down your church right now, throw out all of your church bylaws, and restart your church as a co-op. Everybody has to buy in as an equal member of the co-op. Uh, equal financially, equal participation. Everybody has to identify their gifting, and they have to co-contribute. And uh, so it's literally a community of peers. There's, a, there's an idea for you. Does that help? Absolutely. Then pastors can actually do Ephesians 4 and equip you to do your ministry because you're willing to get up off your ass and be what God shaped you to be. Otherwise, pastors can't be pastors, so they have to do the fake version and just talk to you. So, yeah, I'm I'm okay with your version. There you go. Okay. I like that. Tell me. We're on board together. The difference between cynicism and criticism is that cynicism carries no hope. Criticism is realistic, but oh, is there hope in Christ? He yeah, planned this mess. He planned this mess. And so there is hope. Absolutely. There is absolutely hope. And I would never want to communicate differently. I, 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 I want to be blunt about the challenges, but I think there's absolutely hope. And quite frankly, um, I... So I live in Portland, um, Portland, Oregon, and uh, Huffington Post just came out with an article that listed the top 50 cities in America in order from the most Christian to the least Christian. And the most Christian, according to them, was Salt Lake City, and the least Christian, as you got down to the end, um, the least Christian was Portland, Oregon, according to their sort of statistics. Um, And... uh, so I, I live in a post-Christian city. I live in a city where the vast majority of people have never been to church and would never consider going to church. And in many ways, that gives me hope because that sort of um, we can't be the biggest kid on the block anymore. We can't be satisfied with the status quo. It gives real hope to kind of rebirth new paradigms. And yeah. um, so I, I, think, I, I think the next 25 years is going to be absolutely a rush and a ride for those of us who are willing yeah. to stay in the game. So good. So let me close with this thought, since you are in a Go. post-Christian slash pre-England city. Uh, uh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with that. Uh, we are living in a society that so many folks keep holding on to. We're a Christian nation. We were founded by Christian forefathers, blah, blah, blah. Great. Knock yourself out. However, nobody else that isn't already in your choir is singing that song, which means there's so many great opportunities to do real Christianity because you can't coast anymore. You actually have to have a real transformative gospel that makes a difference in your life specifically and in the world generally. So what is the great adventure that we get to look forward to? That it's not gloom and doom when things hmm. start to turn against the church, at least not in Scripture. So what do you see? Well, yeah, we've got to remind ourselves um, that – so there's, a, there's part of Neighbors and Wisemen where, we, where um, there's a conversation about faith that I have with this, uh, with this Jewish woman. And she just really confronts me very, very strongly on my short-term view of faith, that we are so – we are so addicted to immediate gratification, and we apply that to our faith paradigms. Um, what we are going through right now is not new for the church. It's not even particularly dramatic. 
the church has has cycled and and molded and transformed a thousand times in our two thousand year history. And like I live in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of an of an at that point quote unquote undiscovered continent across an ocean. I literally live on the far side of the world from when Jesus spoke, when when Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the most parts of the earth. I live there. I live in the most parts of the earth from that moment. And the gospel got there. And we have done this well. The, the people of God infused with the spirit of God is an incredibly creative and tenacious group of people. And I have, I have fantastic hope. I think much of what's going to happen in the urban centers, because um, we're already seeing it happen in the Pacific Northwest, is we are going to go back to more of a parish mentality going back to England, to use that terminology, going back to a parish mentality where churches will literally take responsibility for a 10 by 10 block square of their city and go, nothing comes through this square, this section that we don't take responsibility for. Justice issues, poverty issues, race issues, culture issues, whatever it is, we are in it. And every aspect of the kingdom of God, the suffering of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the spiritual needs, the discovery of God, the experience of wholeness and forgiveness, the ability to forgive our oppressors, that these things will once again become the commodities of God's kingdom, and we will, we will fight for them. That's one, of, that's one of the ways that I see hope. And if that sounds tiring to you, our listeners, then take a nap and wake up. <laughs> well, how can people get well, a hold of your book, Neighbors and Wise Men? Uh, just about anywhere. I mean, anywhere online, any, most any Barnes & Noble or whatever is going to have it. Um, so Amazon, it's easy. It's in all formats. So if you want it in Kindle or you like audio versions or whatever, you can get it any way you want. Um, it you can hasn't, track. Been out long, hasn't been out long enough to be in thrift stores yet, right? It has not been out that long. I don't <laughs> think so. But you okay. could go check. And if you want to, I mean, if you want to keep track of what I'm doing, uh, I'm I'm at T O N Y K R I Z on Twitter, or you can, you know, track down my author page on Facebook or whatever. Tony Chris K R I Z K R I Z. That's right. I want to get down to slow and hang out with you. <laughs> I we have a room waiting for you at our refugee camp church. <laughs> nice. I want to see it. That would be awesome. Well, folks, it has been awesome having you, and it has been great talking to Tony. He is my kind of lunatic, and if you didn't think he was crazy, then you're probably our kind of Christian. So uh, <laughs> listen a couple more times and uh, let your heart be encouraged. If you've got uh, – Mondo, I can never remember the Gmail I set up. Where do people send mail to? Samsonpodcast.gmail.com. Yeah, see, it's yeah, and they can also they can also tweet us at Pirate Monk Radio. Yeah, you can tweet us, but that offends my heart. So send us a piece of mail <laughs> so that we can talk about it and we can, you know, wrap our brains around it. At see, I already forgot it again. Mondo, say it one more time. Samsonpodcast at gmail dot com. Samsonpodcast at gmail dot com, and when Nate comes back. He'll have his mailbag ready and your thoughts in it, and we will participate with your lives and your hearts. It has been a good day here from Newton, from Mondo, from Tony. And uh, keep praying for Nate and Allie. Praises for her health right now. Big scare averted. Yay, Nate and Allie. We will see you next week on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me.